when we finally do, God willing, get a vaccine, who's going to take the shot? Who's going to take the shot? You can be the first one to say, put me, sign me up. They now say it's okay. My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free, safe, and convenient. The vaccine is FDA approval. Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. Hello, everyone. This is a recording of the vaccines chapter from the Measuring the Mandates report. The full written report, complete with graphs and footnotes, is freely downloadable from my website, and there's a link to it in the info box. I shall begin. It's a high bar, but the vaccination program was possibly the most contentious aspect of the whole COVID-19 era. Lockdowns inevitably end. Masks can be taken off. But being compelled to have something injected into one's body, for many people, this was an affront too far. For others, the refusal of a seeming minority to embrace science and undergo a demonstrably safe, effective and minor medical procedure spoke to a selfish ignorance in that portion of the population. A tension was established, from which a certain divisive nastiness was birthed. It is disappointing, but perhaps not surprising to see a politician like Joe Biden use his position to exacerbate this divisiveness. More surprising was previously anti-establishment radical voices like Noam Chomsky calling for the unvaccinated to be isolated from society and stating that how they acquired food was their problem. This divisiveness spread into society, with over a quarter of American voters favouring detention centres for the unvaccinated and criminal penalties for merely questioning the efficacy of the shots. In Britain, Tony Blair advocated for the creation of a two-tier society, with the vaccinated enjoying more freedoms, or depending on how you look at it, less restrictions. His institute advocated for a globally interoperable system of health passes. Nurses, the heroes of 2020, have become villains by 2021, with thousands of them facing the sack for refusing the jab. For now, this two-tier society has collapsed its remnants swept away in lawsuits and embarrassing climb-downs. It leaves a more bitter and divided society in its wake, and will doubtlessly return at some point in the future. So how did we get to such a dystopia? It is perhaps helpful to recognise that this situation is not new. For well over a century, states around the world have shown great favour to vaccinations as a preferred public health measure. Whatever good or ill Edward Jenner's creations brought into this world, Efforts to mandate vaccines have always engendered division, with fines, seizures of property and imprisonment being employed to coerce the reluctant. An illustrative, yet seemingly not unique, example was printed in the New York Times in 1901. Begin quote, There was a lively time in the works of the American tobacco company this afternoon, where the 350 girls employed objected to being vaccinated by the physicians sent there by the health officers. When the health officers went to the factory, the girls were informed that every one of them would have to be vaccinated. Some of them fainted, others became hysterical, and there was a general rebellion. About 200 of them, led by Florence Haskell, 
attempted to get out of the works, but they found all the exits locked. The police were called and the work of vaccination began. Some of the girls fought the officers and were led up to the physicians screaming, struggling and kicking. The greatest excitement prevailed and all work had to be suspended. At one time, some of the girls threatened to destroy the factory if they were not allowed to go out, but all were finally vaccinated. End quote. Even the evidence cited by proponents and opponents of vaccination differs. To take measles as an example, proponents might point to the utter collapse in case rate after the introduction of the vaccine as proof positive of its efficacy. And here I have a graph of the case rate of measles in England and Wales remaining consistent from 1940 through to 1965, where the vaccine is introduced and then collapsing down to almost nothing in the years following that. Whereas opponents are likely to point to the death rate from the disease, pointing out it had completely collapsed prior to the vaccine's introduction. And here's a graph of the death rate per 100,000 of measles, fluctuating but remaining relatively consistent through the 19th century, then going into a sharp decline from the 1890s onwards, and becoming practically invisible in the years prior to 1968 when the vaccine was introduced. The same pattern of pre-vaccination decline is present for many infectious diseases, including scarlet fever, for which there is no vaccine. And here I have a graph of measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, diphtheria and smallpox, showing how the death rates all declined prior to the introduction of the vaccine. The decline in measles deaths is also concomitant with the decline in deaths from scurvy, which suggests what we are really seeing is a general decline in nutritional deficiencies through the 20th century. It is with this history we arrive at the COVID-19 vaccine debate. At some point in 2020, the purpose of lockdowns shifted from slowing the spread to keeping everyone safe until a vaccine was available. In criticising the Great Barrington Declaration's call for focused protection, WHO Director General Dr Tedros claimed that herd immunity is reached through vaccination, not by exposing people to a virus. In October 2020, he said, quote, Allowing a dangerous virus that we don't fully understand to run free is simply unethical. It is not an option. End quote. Dr. Anthony Fauci had now shifted from a lockdown skeptic to believing they were necessary until a vaccine was available. Quote, you use lockdowns to get people vaccinated so that when you open up, you won't have a surge of infections because you're dealing with an immunologically naive population to the virus because they've not really been exposed because of the lockdown, end quote. Bill Gates, whose foundation substantially contributes to the World Health Organization, said, quote, One of the questions I get asked the most these days is when the world will be able to go back to the way things were in December before the coronavirus pandemic. My answer is always the same. When we have an almost perfect drug to treat COVID-19, or when almost every person on the planet has been vaccinated against coronavirus. End quote. In spite of predictions that it would take at least 18 months to produce a vaccine, the first vaccine for COVID-19 was actually available in China as early as June of 2020, with the Russians developing one by August. In the West, Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna had vaccines by December, with Johnson & Johnson following on in the February of 2021. The arrival of vaccines was of course treated with jubilation, and the increasingly coercive rollout began. Yet in spite of the, we're all in this together, rhetoric, there was no particular reason to be trusting of pharmaceutical companies, or their regulators, based on track record. 
Perhaps the most famous and egregious case in recent years is that of Merck's arthritis drug Vioxx. Merck's failure to report problems during the trial led to the drug causing an estimated 160,000 heart attacks and strokes in the general population. The US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, was found to be complicit in the dangerous drug's approval. The FDA has often been criticised for operating a revolving door with the pharmaceutical industry. In 2004, Johnson & Johnson agreed to pay up to $90 million to settle lawsuits around their heartburn drug, Propulsid. Johnson & Johnson illegally promoted the drug for children and suppressed studies demonstrating its dangers. Claims indicated that up to 300 people died and as many as 16,000 were injured. The New York Times described this as, quote, a pharmaceutical company trying to save a lucrative drug in the face of growing evidence of the harmful side effects, end quote. In 2009, Pfizer was forced to pay the biggest criminal fine in US history as part of a $2.3 billion settlement with federal prosecutors for mispromoting medicines and for paying kickbacks to compliant doctors. One Pfizer sales rep turned whistleblower said of the lawsuit, quote, In the army, I was expected to protect people at all costs. At Pfizer, I was expected to increase profits at all costs, even when sales meant endangering lives, end quote. Pfizer is also implicated in bribing officials in order to carry out drug trials in the third world. In 2010, AstraZeneca was fined $520 million for promoting an antipsychotic medication for off-label and seemingly unrelated conditions. AstraZeneca was again sued in 2018 for similar practices in the state of Texas, this time for $110 million. In 2021, the company was once again sued by a sales rep who claimed she was fired for refusing to promote drugs in a misleading manner. With this background, and with billions of dollars on the line, there is every reason to have a starting point of cynicism regarding the claims of both safety and efficacy. Subtitle. The Trials. Trials for the various vaccines claim to show significant reductions in symptomatic cases and hospitalizations from COVID-19. The presentation of the trials could be misleading. For example, When AstraZeneca claimed their vaccine was 100% effective against severe disease and hospitalisation, people probably did not imagine this meant that in a study containing over 20,000 people, a total of five people in the control group were hospitalised, whilst none in the vaccine group were. Pfizer used a similar technique of presenting relative risk reduction to claim their vaccine was 95% effective, when the absolute risk reduction was less than 1%. Whilst arguments for either way of presenting data can be made, more concerning was the exclusion of 311, 1.4%, vaccine recipients as compared to only 61, 0.3%, placebo recipients from the trial for protocol deviations. This is an imbalance that cannot realistically happen by chance and suggests the study was not truly blind. Confirmation of this came when a whistleblower provided the British Medical Journal with Dozens of internal company documents, photos, audio recordings and emails demonstrating falsified data, unblinded patients and slowness in following up on adverse events reported in Pfizer's trial. Additionally, not all participants exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 were tested. The FDA was informed of these issues in advance of authorization, but took no action. An independent reanalysis of both the Pfizer and Moderna trials found a statistically significant serious adverse events rate in the vaccine groups. Subtitle. Safe and effective? What happened when vaccines were rolled out? Given the criminal records of the companies developing them, 
apparent problems with the trials, and record-breaking development time, a prudent person might have kept their expectations low. Such caution would have been unnecessary, however, as the vaccines appeared to be nothing short of a medical miracle. The US Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, reported that unvaccinated people were 14, 20, or even 97 times more likely to die of COVID-19, depending on how you cut the numbers. The Office of National Statistics, the ONS, echoed this trend in the UK. By December 2021, a study in The Lancet claimed the vaccines had saved nearly 20 million lives. If this data is accurate, then not only are the vaccines truly life-saving, but the iatrogenic hypothesis explored in Chapter 1 must be severely limited as an explanation for excess mortality. Whilst there certainly must have been iatrogenic deaths during the COVID era, the virus must have caused the lion's share of the excess mortality. This brings up a contradiction, as we explored how the geographic and temporal movement of the mortality spikes is inconsistent with what would be expected from a virus. On the other hand, if the iatrogenic hypothesis is correct, then the vaccine simply cannot have been saving all these lives. We also see an unprecedented safety signal appearing on the US Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, and the British Yellow Card System. As it's very unlikely both these pictures could be accurate, something has to give. It could be that the vaccines are being observed much more closely due to their emergency use authorization, and that's why there are so many more adverse events being reported. The other possibility is that the vaccines aren't so much a miracle as a magic trick. It turns out that there are several statistical sleights of hand that can be employed to create illusions regarding vaccine safety and efficacy. Norman Fenton was Professor Emirates of Risk at Queen Mary University of London. He and his team have demonstrated how these techniques have been employed to just such an end. The following section shall draw heavily on their work. Subtitle. Undercounting the Unvaccinated. A statistical distortion will arise if the estimation of the proportion of the population that is unvaccinated is incorrect. If the estimation is too low, the vaccine will appear more effective than it really is. The opposite is true for an excessively high estimation, which would make the vaccine appear less effective. To understand the implications of this, it is perhaps helpful to start with an abstract example, then move to examine the situation in the real world. Imagine a country of 10,000 people, where 1% of them, 100 people, die from a virus. Medical records reveal that of these 100 people, 80 were vaccinated and 20 weren't. This information alone doesn't tell us anything about the efficacy, of course. We can only assess that if we know how many people in the total population were vaccinated to begin with. If the country's statistics office announces that only 10% of the population were unvaccinated, that means 1,000 people were not, compared to 9,000 who were. This would mean a disproportionately high number of the unvaccinated had died, a mortality rate of 200 per 10,000 as compared to just 89. Assuming all other factors are equal, this is clearly a victory for the vaccine. Now imagine the statistics office confesses to a miscalculation. In their revised figures, it turns out 30% of the society was unvaccinated. The situation now flips, with the mortality rate being 67 for the unvaccinated and 114 for the vaxxed. It turns out the vaccine was not only useless, it was actively harmful. 
In a formal letter of complaint to the United Kingdom Statistics Regulator, Professor Fenton and his colleagues allege this is exactly what the Office of National Statistics has done. They highlight a disparity where the ONS claims 8% of English people are unvaccinated, but the UK Health Security Agency estimates approximately 20%. The regulator acknowledged this point, recognising that ONS data excluded 21% of the population who were not on the 2011 census and registered with the GP. These people are likely to be both younger in age and unvaccinated. The BBC used the ONS's 8% figure for their documentary, Unvaccinated. This was in spite of conducting their own survey, which found 26% of adults were unvaccinated. The statistics regulator pointed out that the ONS makes clear that their analysis is not intended to be, nor is it appropriate for, understanding vaccine effectiveness. The regulator agrees with this assessment. However, Professor Fenton demonstrates that ONS data has been used exactly for this purpose by both the media and the British government. Subtitle When is a vaccinated person unvaccinated? A further issue identified by Professor Fenton's team is that of the vaccines being a little too safe and effective. Whilst this may sound like no bad thing, when the point of impossibility is reached, it rather suggests there is something wrong with the numbers. And here I've inserted a table based on ONS data, comparing the age-adjusted mortality rate between the vaccinated and unvaccinated in England. Many people would not be surprised to find that the unvaccinated suffer 13 times more COVID-associated deaths than the vaccinated. What should surprise everyone, however, is that they also suffer 65% more non-COVID deaths. And the table shows in the aged standardised mortality rate per 100,000 person years, 1,474 non-COVID deaths in the unvaccinated group, but a mere 893 in the vaccinated group. This is certainly a head-scratcher. Attempts to explain this phenomenon have included the idea of long COVID, the proposition that COVID-19 is causing serious long-term health problems, leading to more fatal strokes and heart attacks in the unvaccinated. The studies underpinning this, however, are guilty of comparing dissimilar population groups, people who are sufficiently ill with COVID to seek medical attention, with those who never knowingly caught the virus. If we look just at the last month of the ONS report, the gap between vaccinated and unvaccinated has all but closed in both non-COVID deaths and all-cause excess mortality. Professor Fenton's team suggests this indicates the anomalies might be disproportionately due to misclassification errors that occurred early on in the study period, which were corrected towards the end. What's especially interesting is that in all but one category, deaths of the unvaccinated are now considerably lower than those of the vaccinated. In the decade before COVID, England and Wales averaged around 973 deaths per 100,000 people per year. According to ONS data, even when COVID deaths are factored in, the vaccinated are now dying at a level below that average, whereas the unvaccinated population are dying from non-COVID illnesses at a 50% higher rate than prior to the pandemic period. It could be that the vaccinated are simply a far healthier cohort of the population than the unvaccinated to begin with. However, this would mean that all observational studies and all government data would be significantly overestimating vaccine efficacy by not accounting for this bias. Dr. Fenton's team comment, quote, 
It has been suggested that the anomalies are the result of healthy vaccine selection bias and population differences. However, we show why the most likely explanations for the observed anomalies are a combination of systemic miscategorization of deaths between the different categories of unvaccinated and vaccinated, delayed or non-reporting of vaccinations, systemic underestimation of the proportion of the unvaccinated, and or incorrect population selection for COVID deaths. We also find no evidence that socio-demographic or behavioural differences between the vaccinated and unvaccinated can explain these anomalies. End quote. And here I've inserted a graph comparing the mortality rate between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. What it shows is at the point the vaccine was rolled out in January of 2021, there is a sharp spike in unvaccinated deaths, which then fall away again till they meet the vaccinated by May of 2022. I'll just say that again, the vaccine is rolled out and there is a sharp spike in the deaths amongst unvaccinated people. This caused Professor Fenton to quip that, when you roll out the vaccine, all the unvaccinated suddenly drop dead. Professor Fenton's team claim the explanation for this is that the vaccinated are simply being misclassified as unvaccinated for a period of three weeks after they take the shot. There is a legitimate reason for this. The COVID-19 vaccines are thought to require two or three weeks to take effect. If a researcher is looking to assess vaccine efficacy, then it would be sensible to only consider a person vaccinated after this period has elapsed. This approach, however, obviously obscures any safety signal the vaccine is giving off. Whether the ONS classify vaccine status in this delayed manner is contentious. In response to Professor Fenton's complaint, they reported to the UK statistics regulator that they do not. The regulator accepted this and proposed a different explanation for the data. The ONS's own website seems to contradict this, however, saying, quote, we calculated vaccine effectiveness for different doses and time since dose to observe how the effectiveness changes over time. The vaccine statuses were used, unvaccinated, those of no vaccination, or who were vaccinated with a first dose less than 21 days ago. End quote. This same method seems to be used in both Sweden and by the US CDC. Quote, Persons were considered fully vaccinated 14 days after the receipt of the second dose in a two-dose series, and unvaccinated less than 14 days after the receipt of the first dose of a two-dose series. End quote. Dr. Fenton's team points out that these spikes in apparently unvaccinated mortality do not coincide between different age groups, but rather follow the rollout of the vaccine to those groups. The 80-plus age group was the first to be vaccinated, and coinciding with this, they are the first to see unvaccinated death spike, followed by the 70s and 60s group. This is true for all-cause mortality, but perhaps more tellingly, for non-COVID mortality too. Subtitle Hospital records. Through freedom of information requests, Professor Fenton's team also identified serious problems with hospital record keeping, where patients were classified as unvaccinated if they had not been vaccinated in that particular hospital trust. Alternatively, evidence was found of hospitals using the national system, NIMS, not registering any deaths in vaccinated people prior to that system coming online in June. Subtitle Conclusion if Professor Fenton and his team are correct, claims of COVID-19 vaccinations being both safe and effective turn to dust before our eyes. They are not a miracle, but a magic trick, 
utterly compelling until the sleight of hand is revealed, then it's impossible not to see. The examples given here are by no means exhaustive. Professor Fenton has also shown how statistical tricks such as survivor bias are employed to obscure vaccine dangers to pregnancy. His team's work would also explain the unprecedented level of reports submitted to the US Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System and the UK Yellow Card System. Zachary Stiber, a journalist at the Epoch Times, obtained data from the CDC via a Freedom of Information request. He reported that the CDC had identified hundreds of safety signals for the two most widely administered COVID-19 vaccines and that Bell's palsy, blood clotting and death were among the signals flagged through analysis of adverse events reports. In the UK, Dr Richard Enos analysed the yellow card system and found it indicates unequivocal safety signals for adverse reactions caused by the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines affecting the blood, heart and female reproduction. He further concluded that the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency has provided no protection to the UK public from the adverse effects of novel COVID-19 vaccines and that its regular publication has been an exercise in defending the COVID-19 vaccines from criticism rather than defending the UK public from the COVID-19 vaccines. Okay, thank you for listening. As I said, the full Measuring the Mandates report is freely downloadable from my website. It's also available on Amazon, if that's your thing. And it obviously contains all the graphs and the sources for what I've been saying today. I'll release another one of these audio presentations in the near future, Chapter 5 on Viral Origins.